Welcome to the Fury Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent for business. I am joined by my two partners, John Easton, Adam Belmar. John is the E, Adam is the B. We are EFB. We are also joined by my good friend, Terry Heffernan. Terry is a huge Capitals fan, can you guess? He is a rock in the red, baby. Rockin' the red. He is a graduate of the very fancy Georgetown Prep High School. Went to the DePaul Theater of Arts School. That's great. Graduated from American University. Has two lovely children at wonderful St. Peter's grade school where our kids go. We've talked about it quite a bit. His much better half, and I mean much better half, Sheila, uh, is a big big time dentist on Capitol Hill. What's the name of her uh, dental South practice? Capital Smile Center. Smile Center. I would. Uh, you should all go there. It's get, get a nice smile. We all need nice smiles in our life. Uh, he also did a video series, a homage to chefs called Three Sheets Chef. That's correct. Uh, did it get censored by the censors? Um, it, it it was censored, but, <laughs> but not professionally it's or, or by raw, the. Uh, but it's also a lot of fun. Let's take a quick look. The other thing we're going to drink with the chili, beer. It's a 40-ounce bottle. You know what's in it? Beer. I'm going to pour a little right now. So double fist anytime you like. As you can tell, uh, you don't mess around in the kitchen, my friend. No, no, I've, I've got skills. I've got skills, but it's uh, <laughs> the idea came from how happy all the chefs on the Food Network were. I actually worked for real chefs in Chicago that were incredibly talented artists but miserable miserable people and how many of those chefs were gotten later got in trouble for uh impropriety with the female staff almost all of them yeah that's yeah good. to wow. a t actually come on chefs come on chefs yeah. he's uh, also recently retired as a capitol hill police officer uh adam you want to say a few words about the capitol hill police well you know we were talking earlier uh and i served in the uh in the White House as a commissioned federal officer. And one of the scariest things, most serious things that uh, that I came to know about was plans for continuity of government. What happens in the case of an attack? And for me, it was about learning my very limited role of where to go and what to do. But it made me recognize that for the Capitol Police, who are way more than just a police force, they are shepherding and secreting uh, top secret information that's being briefed to members, but also have a huge role to play in safeguarding the next in line of succession and the leadership. So all due respect to you and the folks that you have worked with for so long about what you do to keep our nation safe and ready in case of an attack. I don't know if you want to talk about a little bit about the responsibilities there, but it's nothing to, to, to scoff at. Yeah, no, it's um, it's quite a responsibility, and they, they, they handle it with uh, aplomb. Uh, there's nine bureaus over there, and all of them serve very specific functions and are very, very well trained. They do a great job. So uh, I would like to put my kudos into the Capitol Police. Uh, they saved my life uh, on several occasions. Uh, once when a gunman came into the Tom DeLay's office and uh, John Gibson uh, saved my life. And uh, Jacob Chestnut uh, died in the line of fire and, you know, just real heroes. And then on 9-11, you know, I was in the Capitol 
And they did, there was no no bullshit there. They got people out quickly and under very difficult circumstances. And so kudos to the Capitol Police. Um, let's have let's retirement into your service, sir. Let's do it. And you know, John John Easton might want to jump in on this because he he still has friends on the on the Capitol Police force. He talks to all the time. Yeah, and that was from 13 years of walking in and out of the the Senate buildings, the Capitol building. I got to see this guy on a on a, on a fairly regular basis and. It's just that sense of security for the members, but also the thousands of staff that are on Capitol Hill is is palpable. Uh, I'm on 9-11 as well, being under – it was such chaos, but you guys were all calm and giving direction. In fact, they had to come into our Senate office and pull a lot of us who are still in there out of there because we were kind of being idiots led by, by uh, the senator himself. But uh, also – Hopefully, I, hopefully he doesn't watch this. Yeah, I, I, well, I mean, get out of the building. I mean, seriously. But but the uh, the other thing is, I live kind of really kind of within the um, you're within the code. I mean, you're the, there on the capital capital. What do you call it? The capital perimeter compound complex. Compa- compound? Complex, complex, compound, village, capital complex, village. And, and it I takes just, a village. I love the fact that the, there's Capitol Police presence always nearby. Uh, so I love you guys. I used to park in front of your house. <laughs> <laughs> so in honor of, in your honor, well, actually, in honor of National Wine Week, which we celebrate Woo-hoo. tomorrow. Wine only gets a day. Oh, I'm sorry. National Wine Day. Uh, We're rocking the red. We're rocking the red, man. And we all need a toast to a hell of a week, right? A hell of a week. Uh, there you go. And I want to let you know that this wine... I, I was from the concierge service at Decanter, which you can find on Capitol Hill. I, I have been talking to the folks at Decanter, and they will be doing a Fury Theory podcast with us talking about wine. We just have to figure out the time and day. Um, but let's go to the first theory. Theory one, Capitol offense. We're going to talk a little bit about the national, the, the Washington Capitals. I watched that, that's, that game. I watched a lot of the series. I am not a huge Capitals fan. Uh, but I wanted them to win, and I wanted them to win because I think it gives us good mojo to the Washington Nationals. I'm much more of a, a Blackhawks fan. But, Terry, you've been a huge uh, Capitals fan for a long time. My life. Talk about uh, what that game meant to you yesterday, last night. It was huge. So I remember specifically uh, watching the 1998 Caps take down Buffalo to go to the Stanley Cup, and they got swept by the Red Wings. And during that time, Red Wings – we're winning every year. It was one of those, like, we're there, but we're taking on a job. I went to one of those games, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then watching this current group, specifically Ovechkin, Backstrom, and Beagle, for 13 years, have the power and the speed and the ability to do great things and bring winning sports to Washington every year, only to fall short with almost the exact same storyline year in and year out the penguins game six game seven and just stuff slipping away what they call uh puck luck yeah just bad bounces literally bad bounces and stuff that's almost impossible to to coach uh or to adjust to and to watch them slip by the penguins this year was was a hallmark and I, i think everyone felt that way that even if we didn't progress to the cup we got one heck of a monkey off of our back and this one to win this 
game against a very, very tough team. The Tampa Bay Lightnings were mostly former New York Rangers. Right. We were yeah. playing our old nemesis that know our game inside and out. And so there, there were moments, just like everyone else in this town, I said, hey, same story again. Here it comes. So to get by and make it to the Stanley Cup against a team that's brand new, <laughs> the Vegas Golden Knights, this is an incredible story. It's an incredible story. It, Vegas. It's, uh, yeah, and I'm happy for the people of Vegas. It's going to be super fun to watch. I wish I didn't just get back from Vegas or I'd be on my way to Vegas. <laughs> All right. So, John Easton, you are a big uh, Nash Capitals fan and Nationals fan. Washington sports fan. Um, I'm a little bit concerned about all the Russians on this team. Uh, it seems to be like there's some sort of Russian conspiracy. A I mean, this is the I real mean, Russian collusion going <laughs> on here. Burakovsky, Ovechkin, yeah. and Kuznetsov. Kuznetsov. Yeah. Uh, so do you want to talk a little about, uh, about the Russians, the Russians or, about the, or about the Capitals, whatever you want to talk about? I love the Russians that are on the Washington Capitals. I don't want them to go anywhere. Uh, I just I agree with everything uh, that Terry said. And, and, and the, the thing that gets me, and as I've watched hockey more and more every year, particularly playoff ho- hockey, because the slogan is correct, there is nothing like playoff hockey i mean the intensity it's hard to even look away if you take a break or anything you're gonna miss something and something incredible but i do think that you know the what did you call it the luck of the puck or or puck luck puck luck i mean it it, a lot of times particularly in, in past years when we were in the playoffs first or second round a lot of times that would happen to us. We were on the wrong side of yeah. the puck luck. And even though they were, they were they were trying their hearts out and they were playing really well, but sometimes, you know, that puck just did not go where you want to go. And we were talking a little bit earlier about how, you know, well, is this, you know, we're, we're, is, is the Capitals, were they cursed? Or I just don't believe in any of that. I think that if you look at the lightning last night, uh, I saw a lot of the lightning in previous Caps teams in the playoffs. They were just sort of a little bit shell-shocked by our Game 6 and how hard we played and how hard we hit and how much heart we played with and going after every single loose puck like their lives depended on it. And I think they, were, they just not, didn't recover. And yeah. I think that has happened to the Capitals a few times as yeah. well as the puck luck. It wore them out. It wore them out, and I think it just... It was our time, and it just also shows you that that the that the stars really, really have to align perfectly for a team to get this far. So, Adam, uh, you've been in Washington your whole life, um, and I'm not sure if you're a, a Cavs fan or not, but I am struck by the this Russian influence, and I and I say that only in a sense of. You know, we're in a far different place than we were in the 1980 when we beat the Russians in the Olympics. This is what free trade is all about. This is what free markets are all about. This is what people who want to go play t- uh, hockey wherever they want. And this team would not be would not be great again without Russians. And, um, you know, I am glad that we have Russians in this country playing hockey so that they can exercise their free will. And Vladimir Putin, he plays hockey. I mean, is it, you know, I'm just I'm just making this connection here because I think it's interesting that we're in the Washington, which is the capital of the United States, and it's going to win because of Russia, and everyone's talking about Russia. I wonder how that makes. Um, I have nothing substantive to that <laughs> except to say that in a previous location for our group, there was a brand new Russian restaurant that uh, was put up, Maravana. And it was a place that was frequented by many of the Russians on the Caps. And I heard they liked it. Well, that's, that's, all I've got. that's actually... Is this the one, right, yeah, uh, on Connecticut right. Avenue? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I where, where, where Alexander Ovechkin would, that's would frequent. Yeah. Yes. Russia House? No, it's no, not Russia House. Mir- Miravana. Because I ran into Ovechkin at Russia House. And I said, what are your... This is years ago when he was maybe third or fourth season in the league. And I said, what are your real thoughts on Crosby? And he'd had quite a bit of vodka at the time. And he just looks at me and goes, 
He is big baby. <laughs> that is big awesome. baby with two Stanley Cup trophies. <laughs> All right, well, we'll move on talking to the theory number two. My button is bigger than your button. President Donald Trump canceled the summit with Kim Jong Un today because uh, he just wanted to, and he th- says that the the Russian, uh, the not the Russian, the Korean <laughs> minister was being hostile and mean to his vice president, uh, Mr. Pence, and he just canceled the summit in Singapore. Uh, Adam Belmar, I'm going to start with you. Thinking about this kind of card game between these two. Wily poker players. I mean, my view is that we have more chips than Kim Jong-un does, um, and we will ultimately win this poker game. Do you think the summit's going to get back on the, on the agenda before the summer? You know, I won't make a prediction about before the summer, but uh, it's obvious that without known preconditions and a great deal of run-up, which is usual for any kind of summit like this, and this is in and of itself a bit unprecedented, of course, um, that it was to be expected. I think most people who were savvy and watching knew that with the addition of the new national security advisor, Bolton, with the rhetoric coming from the vice president and to some extent even the secretary of state, Pompeo, who's been the good cop in all of this, doing the face-to-face negotiations, that it couldn't be on alignment for a perfect landing. You know, And this is also, in my opinion, textbook Trump. He wants to get to a deal, but the give and take and pull of on again, off again has pervaded his politics and his business life. And so they're going to have to really do more than just release some of these hostages like they did two weeks ago. And this is part of that. I think it'll be on. I have no idea if the summer is a reasonable time frame for that. So John Easton, thinking about this, I mean, we got those three hostages or two, I think or three. And then Kim Jong-un destroys his testing facility. Apparently a lot of journalists went out there to witness this. And then Trump says, screw you, I'm not doing the summit. Uh, what's your reading of, of how this is all going to play out? I don't like to, for one thing, I don't think we should read much into that testing facility. I, I'm hearing various reports that it may have even just fell in on itself, uh, that it was, it was sort of done to begin with. It wasn't much of a chip to be putting on the table. But I do think that this is probably what act one or two in a fairly lengthy play. Yeah, and that's right. the, the, the nice thing about about how this has been going is I do think that the negotiations that if that's what, what you want to call it of the past are are done. We're in a new era of not accepting a lot of their BS, which is, is what it amounts to in the end is sure. We'll do this. Sure. We'll do this. Nah, not going to do that. And and I think that. I think Trump is is playing uh, a role that he's best at, which is uh, he he too is in, in, in impetuous. You know, he is he is impulsive, a lot like this North Korean leader. So in a way, he's saying, "Oh yeah, you, you think you, you're Full the only taste of your own medicine? You're going to screw with me? You're the only one who can act like that? No, check this out. <laughs> I, I think that in a way, a personality like Trump may be the the best medicine for for this situation because you can't deal with Kim Jong-un and the the whole North Korea regime 
on a rational, in a rational way. It's just not, and Trump is not really viewed as rational. So actually, yeah, that's an think arrow in our quiver. As far, if it wasn't for Trump, I think that's right. Irreverent. Of course, this was get, this. Of course, this summit was going to get canceled. Big baby, right? <laughs> he has big button. This summit will be on again. It'll probably be off again, man. and then it'll probably be on again. Correct. Terry, what are your thoughts? I'm not going to meet with Rocket Man until he's nice to Pence. <laughs> well, well, that, was, that was pretty good. Well, that was pretty good. Uh, yeah, I think... Uh, Later on, I'll do my W for him. Oh, <laughs> I, I think this is going to be fascinating. I think it's going to be fun to watch. Uh, I think that the fact that we have this engagement with this guy, I think the Chinese are involved. I think our friend Vladimir Putin's involved. Uh, I think that um, the, the, the Japanese are involved. Um, the South Koreans are pretty pissed right now. But, but all of this comes down to trade. And one of the things that uh, Trump was saying is, you can stay around, but we're going to just make your people rich. And Un, Un was like, I don't know. I'm not, I don't want the Libyan model. I don't want to be kicked out of my ass. Um, you know, what do you think of it? Yeah, well, you know, it, it, to some extent, we're, it, semantics, the differences that you and I have in, in, in breaking this down. It is about trade, but what, what was really at the heart, it seems, and uh, in the Senate this morning, the Secretary of State was being uh, forced to testify in this fact, was the supposition that the United States had already communicated to the North Korean leader that given a full dismantlement of nuclear capabilities, the U.S. was ready to pony up hefty sums in order to stabilize that regime and put some life back into these people who are so impoverished. On the, on the flip side... The rhetoric around the Libyan model, which ultimately was a leader who went through a denuclearization and then some period, approximately eight to ten years later, was deposed by his own people, uh, you can take that a lot of different ways. Um, and, and clearly none of them are good for, for Kim Jong-un. But I see this as much about nuclear threat and, and intercontinental intercontinental ballistic missiles as I do about trade. This is still war and peace stuff, John. Yeah, well, I think that's right. I mean, I will also say that uh, it goes back to the Obama administration. You know, the Obama administration was not going to bail out, and they did everything they could to kill Gaddafi. And so Un is thinking, how can I make any deal with this American regime uh, if, you know, I'm going to end up like like uh, Gaddafi, I can't trust these Americans. And then you have John Bolton, who, you know, says all kinds of things that uh, Oon doesn't like. I don't know, John Easton, I think that this is uh, a couple more chapters of this be play, be gets played out. Theory three, the fun in dysfunction. The House is busy passing important legislation on Dodd-Frank, and uh, they passed legislation of Rand Paul on prison reform. No one thought it could get done on behalf of Jared Kushner. The Senate is confirming every conservative uh, judge they can get their hands on, and yet Congress still can't seem to get its act straight on certain things like immigration reform. And uh, there is an effort by President Trump to cancel the August recess if uh, the Senate can't pass enough appropriation bills. Uh, Terry, you've been around Congress for a long time. Uh, how fun is the dysfunction there? It's fun. <laughs> they, uh, it's And uh, again, I'm going to defer. You, you were in that action for a long time. So no, no, don't you don't need to defer. But it was it's fun to watch because when you're up close and personal and listening to them, their conversations are completely opposite than what you hear them say when they're on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC giving the interview. And 
I just look at it right now as far as trying to get a lot done. Anything that's controversial, it seems it's going to get punted because of the, the midterms in November. It seems like they're just going to kind of not do anything that ruffles feathers until... Which is typical for any kind of run-up to the election. I do think, though, that some people have a vested interest, John Easton, in getting immigration reform done. You have the moderates on one one hand pushing for this discharge petition. Mm. You have the conservatives who are up, took down a farm bill because they wanted to vote on their conservative piece of legislation, which is going nowhere. Um, do you think there's any chance on immigration? No. I mean, name an issue that divides the Republican caucus more than immigration. I'm not sure there is one. If, it's, if there is one, then, then this is top three. And we're talking about bringing this up uh, four months before an election. I think that that is crazy. I, I completely understand, and, and I actually probably agree with a lot of the Republicans in the House that are pushing for this ability to get a vote on the floor on a, on a very reasonable immigration bill uh, that would offer some protections for DACA recipients as well as some border um, you know, measures. But you know, President Trump is already out there saying, you don't provide enough money for a wall, then this is going nowhere. I'm going to veto this thing. And then you, this, of course, has to go to the Senate. The Senate's going to have its own say on, and I, and I guarantee you they're not going to pass the House bill just like this, even though it's, the Senate's been the only one, the only chamber to pass immigration reform in the last, gosh, 20 years. Like 12 years, you know, 20 years. So uh, I think that the, the chances are extremely slim. I, again, I completely understand the passion and the effort behind this this House Republican moderates that, that are trying to get this because they've, they've waited long enough. They have been promised many, many times that this will this will happen. It never does. I mean, after a while, as a member of Congress, you get sick and tired of hearing, well, ah, the election's coming up. We'll, we'll do it after the election. And I, I think these guys are just sick of it. I get it. So, Adam, um they have been working on immigration reform for a long time, and to John's point, they just don't want to pass it because they seem to have a vested interest in not fixing it. But the moderates do want to get this legislation passed. Um, you've worked on immigration in the in the past. You were there when uh, President Bush was trying to get this thing passed. Um, and we worked on it again in 2013. It was the last time there was truly a movement in the United States Senate towards comprehensive mm-hmm. immigration reform. Passed. Well, it passed in the Senate. In the Senate. And died in the House. Yeah. And in this case, as John Easton points out, um, there is passion, there's desire to move it forward. But more importantly, it's political cover. People want to be able to say and show that they took a vote where they stood on this. And that's what they're denied beyond actually getting a piece of legislation passed is the ability to get on the record. Here And, you know, Democrats clearly want to be able to show beyond the rhetoric that they can cast a vote. Everybody up there who's anywhere near wanting this thing to get to a vote has real specific um, parochial political interests in doing so. Um, But we had uh, Congressman Rooney on this show last week, and he said to you, you know, I have uh, suffered at the hands of leadership who have told me to withdraw things that aren't going to move or are not in line with priorities. And you know better than anyone else how serious that can be to what the agenda is. I really want to know from you, do you think they will get critical mass, regardless of the realities of it, to put this on the floor? I think they have no choice to get, but to get it on the floor. I think it will be either through the discharge petition, um, which will kick out four different pieces of legislation, or they'll try to get a compromise piece of legislation. My own view, and this has been my view for a long time, is they should allow an open rule 
let the House work its will. Uh, I know that conservatives will be unhappy about that because they don't have the majority position. But, you know, this is it's a broken system, and it has to happen. I think also that with the fact that Paul Ryan is leaving, you know, let him do a coup against Paul Ryan. Who else are they going to put in his place? They're not going to get Jim Jordan. Just move this thing. And I think that ultimately the, when the Congress works on issues that are important to the American people, you know, that's that's politically popular. Well, and and, and by the way, they are five votes short of, of forcing at this, this, at this yeah, moment, five votes short of, of securing a discharge petition successfully. And I think it's worth noting again, and we have on the show before, that uh, the both major comprehensive immigration reform efforts that, that began in the Senate in 06 and 13 both passed the Senate. Right. And then nothing was even taken up in the house at all it didn't die you know it, it i suppose it died on its walk over to the senate but but it never was considered it in in the house um and and so in in that respect i think well that's that's a, that's the thing is if it does it'll be a huge deal if anything passes the house now the fact of the matter is that nothing will probably pass they'll get it to the floor but they won't be able to reach agreement that being said uh, and i also think that the democrats don't really want to have this passed because if this gets solved under President Trump's watch, I mean, how embarrassing is that for the Democrats? Is it that they don't want it because they can't let him have the win, or is it because they are so, as pro-DACA and other elements as they are, they are absolutely hard against the wall? They're, and they're not going to let this, anything pass in the Senate. There's no way, because... They are, they, the they are gonna they are going to hit hard against funding for a wall because that is a bit of a litmus test for a lot of the Senate Democrats I think and because the left is 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 demanding such purity on this issue I'm not sure that that's gonna happen. well it is now it wasn't when the, the border surge promised eighty billion dollars to pay for a wall and a bunch of other stuff but that's when President Obama was president so Terry um, you talked. You said a little bit about the differences between what people say in public on CNN and what they say privately. Do you have any good examples of that? Oh boy, um, you, can, you don't have to mention any senators by name. I mean, my, I, I personally, you know, know a lot of members on both sides of the aisle, and they all get along pretty well. They get along pretty well, except when they're on TV. Right, right. They rattle cages. They say controversial things about other members' ideas and and yeah. things that they're promoting. But behind closed doors, they're, they they hang out. They hang out. And I, I personally think that's a really good thing. <laughs> I'd like to see, I'd like to see guys who are diametrically opposite, uh, ideologically wise, ideological wise, and have a beer together and shoot the breeze and and sort of come to an understanding. I, I used to see it at mass. I used to see Kennedy sitting right next to. Um, Wow, sorry, the senator from New Mexico. He passed Domenici. Domenici. They used to sit right next to each other, and I used to just remember, like, this is a good, perfect example of how democracy works. They hang out. They go to mass together. They know each other's families, and they can be completely opposite as far as the ideas go. Um, yeah, and, and I think to your point, Terry, that, that you know, a lot of people say, well, maybe they don't spend enough time at home. But I think in, in a lot of respects, they don't spend enough time here. And I, what I mean by here, yeah, I mean a little extra time in D.C. to have a beer, to have a dinner, yeah. to just have a little bit of, a, of socializing with your fellow senators or fellow House members so that you can build a little bit of trust. So when you say you go into a, into a, 
a deal together or maybe write a bill together that your word is is your bond. And that was established not just because your staff started working on a bill together, but because you've actually been out on a trip on a Codel on uh, out to dinner or your wives have gotten together, you know, with you. I mean, it just that stuff matters. Yeah. Hey, Terry, Terry, talking a little occasionally on um, the Secret Santa. Yeah. They do Secret Santa, and it's different members from all over the place get assigned someone randomly, so it's not it's not party wise. It's true. You'll have uh, yeah. So Terry, you're working talking about dinner. You're working on a book, mm-hmm. and it's called Fun. Can you tell me a little bit about that book? It came from almost the same place that Three Sheet Chef came from. People were like. Uh, I want to be on your show. It looks like it's so much fun. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, it came from uh, an experience, a little adventure down the Outer Banks where we were stuck really far from grocery store. You had to deal with what you had. There were no recipe books. And we just grabbed a hodgepodge of stuff and got creative. And that's what I want to I want to build the building blocks for creative cooking. So you don't have to look at two teaspoons of salt, two teaspoons of none of that stuff. It's just salt and pepper. <laughs> right. Pretty much goes with anything you're ever going to cook in the kitchen. And, and, salt and pepper. And, and, and tequila. And tequila. And there's so much <laughs> fun. <laughs> tequila and butter. It's amazing what you can do with And what's the name butter. of this book going to be called? It's going to be fun, I think. I think. We you're haven't still, settled on a, on a And who, who's your co-author? It's just me. It's you. Okay. All right. I have a nutritionist no that's going to weigh in. You have a nutritionist. I have a nutritionist. Uh, well, we that's going to weigh in at the end of it. <laughs> why, are you, why are you looking at me when I'm talking about nutritionists? Yeah, we can use. We need an EFB nutritionist. Maybe John John Easton can serve in that role. We all need a nutritionist. <laughs> yeah. I figured a little corner in you know on, on the, in each recipe talks about fun, what to drink with what. Like you know, this is a smooth, soft red. Have it with some spiced shrimp, right? Mm-hmm. And then in the corner. Use less Old Bay, <laughs> maybe more hot sauce. Right. What do they call that three dollar red down there in Louisiana? It's called a Burgundy. Burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> That's also a street. <laughs> you were drinking too much Burgundy when you was on Burgundy. <laughs> well, uh, now that we're at the end of that, uh, any other things you want to say about the United States? And how long did you work there? Um, well, Capitol Police for ten years, and I was. Um, on the Senate side from 11 to 18, seven years on the Senate floor. And, and who, was, who was your favorite member? Oh, boy. Probably Senator Burr. Really? Um, just hilarious. Just absolutely hilarious. And you probably can't tell us your least favorite member, can you? Um, let me think about it for a second. Um, probably somebody who's retired. Boy, they, see, they're all nice to the police officers. So, like, I got the best of 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 treatment. They were always very polite and kind. Um, there, there, there was one who um, was was particularly obnoxious. Um, dead or alive? He's no longer in the Senate. Is he uh, dead or alive? He's alive still. Ooh. Um, Can I guess? Yes. Uh, uh-huh. If you guess it, I'll tell you, Senator. Bob Torricelli? No. Okay. <laughs> that was before my time. Okay. No, that's New Jersey. He was uh, he was forced to resign. Yeah. Uh, All right, so uh, we're going to move on now to the f- really important segment of the show. What are you buying or selling today, John Easton? You always have to start with me, don't you? We're at the opposite end of the table. It gives me more time to think what I'm going to say. <laughs> I'm going to uh, sell 
the the weather that just left the Washington D.C. area. Um, I never want to see it again. <laughs> right, right. And then I I'm gonna buy something that no, really. I mean, it's been bad here. I mean, bad. Just deluge day after day after day after day. We saw the sunshine yesterday and today. It has just been a huge breath of fresh air. And I'm gonna buy something that I actually bought uh, that just arrived yesterday. <laughs> a rebuy. Uh, it was a case of wine. Wine. And uh, from uh, the the beautiful Oregon um, wine Little country. Valley. And uh, it was from Retour Wines, retourwines.com. Uh, a little bit of Manifest Destiny Pinot Noir and uh, the Retour uh, Rosé. See the weather's here? It's time to drink some rosé. All right? I'm comfortable saying that. Wow. As, 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 a, as a male. It's, it's okay. Uh, rosé. We had a little sideline discussion about the propriety of rosé on this table. We decided against it. Yeah, we're, 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 we're pretty, pretty dark today. Burgundy. Easier to cook with Burgundy. <laughs> Terry Heffernan, what are you buying or selling in today? In honor of National Wine Day, I'm, I'm going to go bigger than a case. I'm buying vineyards on the west side of the Colorado Rockies. Uh, if you um, believe in what they're telling us about climate change and uh, California is going to disappear and we're going to have to have those delicious tempranillos from uh, the, the westward-facing hillside vineyards. So when do you think this is uh, this bed is going to mature? Do you think all of California is going to fall off? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> uh, I don't He's know. It's, it's precarious. Yeah, yeah. Property. This is a long-term bed. A long-term buy. Slides, it's a long-term buy. Long-term <laughs> Wildfires. Long-term buy. Long-term. Uh, Adam <laughs> Belmar, what are you buying or selling today? Well, I've been thinking about this all week, and uh, oh, today I Jeez. am buying Pope Francis. This week, the Pope weighed in with uh, comments about uh, homosexuals and the fact that God put them on this earth and made them just the way that they are. And there's been a lot of pushback, some amongst conservatives and other Catholics, questioning whether the the pontiff can uh, unilaterally reinterpret or decide morality. I would submit that not only can the pontiff not do that, that's not what Pope Francis did. What Pope Francis so uh, wonderfully did was state that in the eyes of God were all his children and helped to uh, bring, I hope, some clarity and acceptance to the differences amongst God's children. And so for that reason, with great aplomb, to use your word from earlier in the show, uh, Pope Francis has done what we would call in the Jewish faith a mitzvah, a blessing from God to all people to point this out. And I'm very up with Pope Francis. Bye, bye, bye. Right, oh, that's amazing. Once you follow that one up, so <laughs> I, I'm going to I'm going to buy an old time stock that really never stops giving to me on so many different occasions, and that is the movie Spinal Tap. This one goes to eleven, just as God made me. There's so many lines from that movie that I use on a constant basis. That um, I would, if if you're a young person, have have not seen the movie Spinal Tap. I suggest but you, you are do watching that. this podcast. <laughs> You're watching this podcast. <laughs> the Venn diagram very small, but if you are. <laughs> Stop watching this podcast and start watching Spinal Tap, one of the greatest movies of all time, and that is my buy. Terry Heffernan, we are so glad to have you here for the Fury Theory podcast brought to you by EFB. Uh, cheers. Slancha, Mazel Tov. Cheers, brothers. And uh, you guys, happy summer. Bye-bye. Go Caps. Excellent for business. Go, go yeah. Caps. Unleash the fury.